0: Good morning. Thank you. And happy Mother's Day. Um, you probably know this, but if you don't, then I'll just tell you that Mother's Day is not a liturgical holiday. Uh, it's a Hallmark holiday. So this is not going to be a Mother's Day sermon. But I did preach a Mother's Day sermon way back in 2020. It's a good year. Um, and we, where we looked at the, some of the maternal imagery for God in the scriptures and what that means for us. So if you're interested in hearing that, that's available to you on the website. But Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for sending your son, um, your word spoken through the prophets and made flesh to walk among us. And we pray that by your spirit now, you would help us to know and to love and to abide in him even more. Amen. So there are two popular approaches to the Christian life. Two, uh, you could call them paradigms that seem to be somewhat at odds with each other. The first one goes like this. Jesus is Lord, He is King, so if you're really a Christian, then you are living a holy life in obedience to God. Christian faith isn't just about intellectual assent. it's not just about believing certain ideas, it's about being allegiant to the King. It's about taking up your cross and following him for the renewal of the world. Let's call that the obedience paradigm. But the other popular approach to Christian living goes more like this. Jesus is Lord, yes, but he's already done all the work on your behalf. So there's nothing you need or even can do to earn your place in his kingdom. You are loved unconditionally. You are saved by grace through faith, and the hardest work of the Christian life is really just learning how to settle into that and to receive God's goodness toward you. I'll call that the grace paradigm. Maybe you're familiar with one or both of these paradigms. Maybe you've toggled between the two in your life, or you feel kind of caught in the middle. And of course it begs the question, which one is more accurate? Is the Christian life about obedience or is it about grace? I hope you see where I'm going with this. Are we called to take up our crosses and follow Jesus or are we invited to come to him and find rest? To borrow the language of John 15, are we supposed to be fruitful or are we simply supposed to abide? Yes, the answer is yes. In this beautiful sermon, to his disciples, Jesus shows us how these two seemingly opposite paradigms for Christian faith actually belong together. He describes the relationship between a vine and branches to illustrate how God's unconditional love is the foundation, but also it's the life force that animates our obedience to him, which produces tangible fruit in our lives. In talking about these things as parts of an organic whole, Jesus really creates a brand new paradigm. He calls us to recognize God alone as the source of goodness and love, but he then calls us to a life that participates in God to manifest that goodness and love in the world. We could call this the fruitfulness paradigm. Hear Jesus' words to us this morning Abide in me, and I in you. This is verse four of our reading. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. We are called to be fruitful. But the way we produce fruit is not just by trying really hard. The way we produce fruit is by abiding, resting, remaining in God and his love for us. In fact, the only imperative in this whole section, the only command Jesus gives us is to abide. But let's be honest, abide is not a word that we use very often. So we have to do some work to uncover its meaning. But also, abide is not a very satisfying actionable, is it? This is what my prayer life was like this week. Lord, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to live? And I was in John 15 abide in me. And I was like, yeah, okay, but what do you want me to do? Maybe you relate to that. A number of years ago, I went through a sig- season of significant healing in my life. I was working through a traumatic event from my childhood. And I remember being very frustrated by the fact that my healing journey couldn't be managed like my daily to-do list. I wanted someone, I very badly wanted someone, to just tell me the tasks to do so I could do them, check them off, and be done and move on. But healing doesn't work like that. It's much slower and much less linear than we want it to be. And we are much less sovereign over it than we want to be. And the truth is, the Christian journey is the same way. What Jesus calls us to here in John 15 is not to just get out there and crush it for the kingdom. He's not giving us a to-do list. He's not even asking us to decide what kind of fruit we'd like to bear, or when, or how much. He's asking us to abide. There's a very challenging passivity to this call. There's a kind of relinquishment of control of timelines and outcomes that can feel frustrating at best or terrifying at worst. To abide in him is to entrust yourself to him and to his father's pruning knife. So that's what we're gonna talk about this morning. What does Jesus mean when he calls himself the vine and what does it look like to abide in him? So first, the vine. This was a very familiar illustration to Jesus' disciples, both because in their agricultural society, vineyards were very common, but also because all throughout the Old Testament, God refers to Israel as his vine, or his vineyard, and he refers to himself as the vine dresser. This is Psalm 80. Lord, you have brought a vine out of Egypt. You have cast out the nations and planted it. You prepared room for it and caused it to take deep root, and it filled the land. This image is fairly straightforward, right? And it's not an image of kudzu. The vine of Israel is not a weed that God has just left to its own devices to take over his backyard. Israel is a grapevine, a purposeful plant that God planted and tended for a purpose. The purpose of bearing fruit, of being a blessing to the world. This goes all the way back to the beginning when God said to Abraham, through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. But in Israel's story, this image of the vine had become a bit of a sore spot because the prophets chastised God's people for not fulfilling that purpose. Instead of blessing the nations through their faithfulness to God, Israel assimilated to the nations in rebellion against God. This is Isaiah five. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill He dug it and cleared it of stones, and planted it with choice vines. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Israel was not faithful to her calling and the prophets called them on that. But the prophets also spoke of a future renewal for God's people when they would rediscover and finally fulfill their purpose. Isaiah goes on in chapter 27, in that day, a pleasant vineyard, sing of it, I the Lord am its keeper. In days to come, Jacob shall take root. Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with its fruit. So that's the backstory. story. That's the promise of a renewed, fruitful Israel into which Jesus tells his disciples, I am the vine. And he actually says, verse 1 of our passage, I am the true vine. In other words, Jesus is the true Israel. He is the fruitful plant that God has prepared for this world. I am the vine, Jesus says, that will yield fruit to bless the nations. Jesus' disciples needed to hear this for two reasons. First, he's reminding them that despite all the conflict he's had with Jewish leaders, Jesus did not come to scrap what God had been saying and doing through his people for thousands of years. Jesus doesn't erase Judaism. He fulfills it. So, he's calling his Jewish audience to be faithful to their story by following him. If you belong to Israel, he says, to true Israel, then follow me. If you want to bear fruit and remain grafted into this vine, then remain in me. But second, and equally important for his Jewish audience, Jesus calls them to abide or remain in him because he knows that in the coming years, they're going to experience significant persecution and he wants to encourage them to stay the course. In the very next chapter of his sermon, Jesus says to them, this is John 16 verse 1, he says, I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues, but I have said all these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I have told them to you. So to abide in Jesus, or to remain in him, isn't just a warm and fuzzy kind of thing. It's a fierce commitment to stick with him even when it becomes quite costly. Now, here's how I think Jesus' words about the vine uh, can land on us as non-Jewish disciples. We don't share Israel's ethnic history, but we do, as human beings made in God's image, we do share this nearly universal desire to bless the world. This idea of a fruitful vine that will make wine for the nations, that will bring celebration and blessing to the whole earth, that's appealing, right? Whether we identify as religious or not, when we think about the world and its problems, most of us want to be part of the solution. Now, we might also be caught up in the problems, and let's be honest, we all are. We're all complicit with structures of injustice or inequity We're all stuck in our own ways and dysfunctional patterns and habitual sins. But that's actually quite central to Jesus' point here. If we want to break free from that, if we want to experience renewal both for ourselves and for others, we cannot do it apart from Jesus. Culturally, we're very enchanted with humanism. This idea that if we all just work together, we can fix ourselves and fix the world and everything will be great that we have the power within us if we can just tap into it. But Jesus' claim here flies directly in the face of that. He says, I am the vine. I am God's project in the world. I am the solution to the problem. If you want to see the world made new, if you want to see yourself or your family or your neighborhood made new, then you need to get close to Jesus. Now, back to the infuriating relinquishment that comes with this call. Because maybe you're thinking, well, I've done that. I've cast my lot with Jesus. I am a Christian. I'm seeking to live faithfully to him, but actually, my life is still pretty messed up. Or the church is still pretty messed up. I'm not sure I like what Jesus is doing. If that's you, I hope you can hear these words of Jesus with a new depth this morning remain in me remain with jesus trust in him entrust yourself to him when his methods or his timeline or even his people don't make any sense to you because there are times when that will absolutely be the case maybe long periods of time but the promise is that if you remain in him you will bear fruit that's your destiny Listen to verse 5 again. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he or she it is that bears much fruit. Now, I'm not a gardener. Some people talk about having a green thumb. They're good at growing things. Well, I like to say that I have a brown thumb, and I'm good at killing things by accident, of course. You can ask Heather because she waters the plant on my desk. But I know that part of what I don't like about gardening is how slow it is. It's so much work to prepare the soil. What else do you do? Plant the seeds, water the seeds. (laughs) I've never done any of this, actually. Um, Protect the seeds from the critters, you know, make sure they're getting enough sunlight, all these things. And then only to see a tiny little shoot that I'm supposed to feel proud of. (laughs) My husband is more of a gardener, and sometimes we'll be out in the yard, and he'll say, oh, oh, come see, our kale has sprouted. And then he points very eagerly to these tiny, microscopic little green leaves sticking out of the ground that I did not notice. And I say, wow, that's great. (laughs) I apologize to him in the first service. But really, the time and the dedication that it takes to produce a real harvest or even to cultivate one really fruitful plant is sobering, isn't it? Some would say it's the work of a lifetime because the soil really can take that long to get healthy. And there are seasons when you have to let things lie fallow or cut things back, when you have to do a whole lot of work that won't pay off until next year or the next or the next. And brothers and sisters, this is the work that is happening in us. This is the kind of slow, patient, lifelong cultivation that our Father is committed to doing in his people through Jesus for the sake of the world. You don't have to understand it. You don't have to like the way it feels. You don't have to try to control where it's going or how soon or what gets pruned and why. You just have to remain to trust the promise that even the most painful parts of this journey, even the parts that feel like abandonment or punishment, will either be taken up and burned away or else will strengthen the harvest that is coming. And if you have a hard time believing this, then I encourage you to just look again at Jesus. He is the vine who has already undergone the deepest pruning of anyone. He submitted himself to the pain of the cross. He allowed himself to be cut back to what literally seemed like a dead stump. And you know what? In his humanity, Jesus suffered the existential anguish of that too. The bewilderment of feeling abandoned by God, even though he knew and trusted God's plan. He still cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But by his resurrection, Jesus has been vindicated and proven to be the one true vine, the unstoppable work of God in this world, whose life can never be snuffed out, and whose very death is now, for us, the source of life. This is the vine into which we have been grafted by faith. So brothers and sisters, remain in him. Stick with him, even when it hurts or doesn't make sense. Trust that his power, his life is at work in you to yield a harvest of his choosing for his glory. And in closing, let me say just a few words about what this might look like. What does it look like to abide in him? This word, as I've already said, is a little bit old school, abide. But you might be more familiar with the word abode or dwelling, which comes from the same root. So when Jesus says to abide or remain in him, he's saying, make your home, make your abode in me. And if you think about the relationship between a branch and a vine, you can see how this fits. A branch is no more at home. It's no more in its place than when it's alive on the vine. This is what Jesus wants for you. He wants you to be at home in him. Home is a complex subject, I realize. And I'm mentioning it on a complex day for many of us when we're thinking about the people who perhaps most shaped our experience of home, our mothers. But I think it's actually quite fitting that we can acknowledge both the joy and the pain associated with home. And we can locate within all of it a kind of longing, a longing to be known and to belong somewhere. C.S. Lewis had called it the inconsolable secret, this longing that we all have for home, which he described as a welcome into the heart of things, a welcome into the heart of God. In his essay, The Weight of Glory, he says that when we are accepted by God, the door on which we've been knocking, all our lives will open at last. I'm going to read that again. When we are accepted by God, the door on which we've been knocking, all our lives will open at last. Do you feel at home in Jesus? Did you know that you can? That's the invitation. Make your home in me, Jesus says. Make your home in my love. You really do belong in it. You can set your keys down. You can take off your shoes or keep them on. It's your home. This love is your home. And it's from that place of belonging of safety in God's love, that we begin to not only live in it, but to live from it. When we abide in the vine, when we are nourished by him, we find that we then have something to give others, that we have access to a power, to a life source that's greater than our own. So there's a receiving and a giving aspect to this. We receive his love and then we give it out. In my study this week, I came across a few different scholars who illustrated this with a very simple exercise breathing. To abide in God's love is as natural and essential as our breath. Breathe in God's love for you, breathe out God's love for others. We receive from Him, and then we have something to give. We abide in Him in order to bear fruit. And I've used that little exercise this week a handful of times. Uh, Maybe when I was irritated with my children, once or twice, or many more times than that. Uh, When I was feeling stressed about a project, or even when I was just lost and trying to pray, I would stop and breathe. I receive your love for me, and I trust your resources for what's in front of me. So I leave that with you as a tool that might help you put this into practice. And I also want to leave you with Jesus' words one more time so that his words are the last that you hear. So just hear these words in a spirit of prayer. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we receive these words. Amen.